Good evening, everyone. Welcome to Stewart Observatory to this, our fourth lecture for the Fall 2012 Stewart Observatory Public Evening Series, our 87th year of providing public lectures. And we welcome those of you listening to this lecture via the World Wide Web on iTunes U. So, uh, before I introduce tonight's speaker, I would like to tell you that unfortunately, the secondary mirror in our 21-inch telescope has gotten stuck at its focal limit, which means we can't focus the telescope. That's what I was up there trying to do. So, we'll still have public viewing at the conclusion of tonight's lecture, but it'll be through the 8-inch finderscope. You know, if you'd like to look at some clusters or something through the 8-inch telescope, but you won't be able to see anything through the big telescope tonight because we can't focus it. And the technician doesn't come to work until 8 o'clock tomorrow morning. Uh, for those of you who are students who are here for an assignment, I am the person who will validate your assignment, unless you're in Professor Holberg's class. And there he is. He'll take care of you if you're in his class. For the rest of you, I'll be at this table, and I will validate your assignments. Finally, I put some flyers out at the back because we do not have a public evening lecture two days, uh, two weeks from today, okay? Uh, and that's because of the special Mark Aronson Memorial Lecture. For those of, you, those of you who have been here for a while know, for those of you who are new, Mark Aronson was our colleague. He was an assistant professor, actually an associate professor, no, full professor. That's right, he pulled that trick. He went right from assistant professor to full professor uh, back in the 1980s. But he was tragically killed at the four meter telescope on Kitt Peak on the night of April 30th, 1987. He was the only professional astronomer to die in the line of duty in the 20th century. And as an honor to him, every two years his family comes back from California and we give a lectureship in his honor. And we're quite excited that we pick up and coming young hot astronomers. Two of our previous recipients, John Mather and Brian Schmidt of this lectureship, have went on, went on to win the Nobel Prize in Physics. Yeah, I know, that's cool. Well, our recipient this year is Dr. Peter Van Dochem, who is the uh, chairman of the astronomy department at Yale University. It's this little school in Connecticut somewhere. But we thought we'd you know, invite him to Arizona since he doesn't get much attention at, at Yale. Um, but he's gonna be here Friday night the 16th. So I just wanted to warn you, right, our next public lecture, which is the Aronson Lecture, is on Friday, November the 16th at 7.30. And what I did on these new flyers, I actually published the abstract of his talk. So if you wanna read, it's called The Rise of Galaxies. If you wanna read what it's about, I've got it on those pages, you can read the abstract. So there will be no public lecture then two weeks from tonight. Our last one will be in December. Um, without further ado then, let me introduce tonight's speaker, who is Professor Fulvio Melia. Fulvio is a native of Australia, and he received his bachelor's degree from Melbourne University in Physics, and that was at University of Melbourne, yes, in Physics. Then he went to another little school you might have heard of. It's called the Massachusetts Institute of Technology uh, in Cambridge, Massachusetts, uh, where he received his doctor's degree in physics. He's been on the faculty here for 21 years. He is a professor both in the physics department, the department of astronomy, and in the department of applied mathematics. And uh, he's also an author. In fact, the last time we had you here was three years ago. You had a book out on black holes which I read and then put bits of it into my class on stars because he very nicely explained. I had never understood rotating black holes until I read that book. So without further ado, I would like to call upon Professor Melia to speak to us about the cosmological space-time. Thank you, Tom. And thank you all very much for coming out this evening. Um, if it's okay, I'm going to dim the lights a little bit more. I know it's quite dark right now, but some of these images are fairly dark. And I think at least at the beginning of the presentation, it'll be better for all of us if it's a little darker. Um, the, the two words, cosmological and space-time, 
don't often go together. You may not have heard them mentioned in this way together before. Um, there's a good reason for that, and my hope is that during the lecture you'll see why that has been the case and why things are now changing. You'll hear these two words together, mentioned together more and more as we go forward. Um, Space-time, of course, refers to general relativity. General relativity had its golden age back in the 60s. It lasted about 15 years. And during that time, <clears throat> general relativity solidified as a fundamental branch of physics. That's when many of the important discoveries were made and, and there, were, there was experimental verification, there were advances in a theoretical fashion. And many of the properties, for example, that we attribute to black holes were discovered during that period and were understood during that period. Um, today, when we think about cosmology, it seems for several reasons that cosmology is now entering its own phase, its own golden age. It's at the beginning of its own golden age. And one of the main reasons for that is that it's now possible with the exceptionally good and high-resolution uh, uh, data that we're acquiring to bring general relativity into the discussion in cosmology. Um, I think those of you that know a little bit about cosmology, or perhaps even a lot about cosmology, realize that cosmology is based, first and foremost, on one of the most important solutions to Einstein's equations. But that solution was discovered about 85 to 90 years ago. And since that time, very little has been done along the lines of merging cosmology uh, with general relativity. But that's now changing. And what I'm hoping to do this evening is to show you some of these recent developments and to point the way for uh, where research in cosmology, at least in a theoretical fashion, is likely to go over the next few years. So to begin with, um, we know, of course, that the universe is expanding. There's no question about this. The data um, have indicated that the universe is expanding for many, many decades. And we describe the expansion, as I started to mention a few moments ago, by using one of um, the most important solutions in general relativity, known as the Friedman-Robinson-Walker metric, about which we will have a lot more to say later on. We'll come back to this um, a little bit later. But as I also indicated, this solution was introduced into cosmology back in the early 1920s. So it's been quite a while since there have been any new developments uh, brought in from general relativity in terms of interpreting the data that have been acquired over the, the many decades since then. So um, the first major transition, at least with modern cosmology, occurred in the, in the early 1930s. And I think you, many of you, perhaps all of you, will recognize the individual in this photograph. That's Hubble. Um, Hubble was the one who uh, showed without any doubt that distant galaxies, distant sources were receding from us um, at a speed that was proportional, it seemed, to, the, to their distance. Now, it's fair to say that Hubble was not the only individual back then who had suggested that the universe might be expanding. In fact, he might not even have been the first. Um, since we live here in Arizona, I think it's fair to mention that probably the first individual who noticed that distant galaxies were receding from us was the astronomer Slipher, who was working up at Lowell Observatory in Flagstaff. And if, if you ever go up there, if you haven't gone there yet, um, you'll be able to see the 17 or 18 slides that he took of nebulae, as they called the galaxies back then, indicating that the spectra were all redshifted, and the interpretation was that this is probably a kinematic redshift, meaning that the galaxies were receding from us. So the, the indication that the universe, um, or at least that many of the distant nebulae were receding from us, actually occurred uh, before Hubble. But Hubble was the one who took this um, and made it a serious study. He looked at thousands of galaxies, and here is an example um, of one of the figures that he published in one of his papers, which shows that the velocity increases more or less linearly with distance. And this has come to be known as Hubble's Law, as I'm sure you've, you've all heard before, where the velocity is proportional to the distance, and the proportionality constant is called Hubble's constant, 
for obvious reasons in honor of the work that Hubble did. And by the way, uh, for the sake of historical interest and also to couple with some of the things that we'll be saying a little bit later, there was actually some theoretical argument. Uh, there were several theoretical arguments made for why the universe might be expanding. One of these was by um, the mathematical prodigy Friedman, the Russian Friedman, um, whose father was a ballet dancer, by the way, and his, his mother was a, a math teacher. Uh, he was brilliant from a very young age, and, and he solved Einstein's equations in his early 20s. And it was his solution that indicated the possibility that the universe might be expanding, and he was the one who actually suggested it. Uh, from the theoretical perspective, even though Einstein never liked his solution, um, and at first Einstein objected to having his paper published, but then eventually they discussed it and, and Einstein let it go through in the journal. Uh, and that's why we call that solution the Friedman, and then of course Robertson and Walker who contributed uh, later on. But there was also another individual, uh, the Belgian George Lemaitre, who is credited with originating the idea that the universe started from a small volume and expanded, the Big Bang idea, which he didn't call the Big Bang back then, but it was his uh, suggestion uh, at the beginning that led to this notion that the universe might be expanding from um, a much smaller volume. And again, we'll come back to this a little bit later because general relativity has a lot to say uh, these days about how all, all of these ideas work together. Okay. So now the question is, how do we understand Hubble's law and how do we fold it into the context of general relativity? Well, it turns out that understanding where Hubble's law comes from is not difficult at all, at least in retrospect. Maybe it took a while uh, for, for people to come to grips with what it was telling us, but now that we uh, look back and, and we understand um, the various developments that have happened, it, it's actually not a very difficult idea to, uh, to come to, to grips with. And it has to do with the symmetries and simplifications that the universe seems to have. One of them actually originated with this Polish priest by the name of Copernicus. Um, and I'm sure that all of you have heard of Copernicus before. Um, this is an interesting wax statue made uh, from the remains that were found of Copernicus and also using portraits that were made of him during his life. This is apparently what he looked like just before he, he died um, at, at the time of, of his death. Now, Copernicus was a remarkable individual, um, obviously very brilliant, and he argued um, for a change in paradigm that had existed for a couple of thousand years, or almost a couple of thousand years. His suggestion was that as special as we think we are, we should not think that everything revolves around us, that we're at the center of the universe. Um, and this simple diagram illustrates uh, why he argued that way. This was the prevailing thinking that the Earth was at the center of the universe. Remember that the universe back then was basically the Earth, the Sun, and a couple of planets, and the Moon. So the idea was that the Earth was at the center, and the Sun revolves around the Earth. The Sun, of course, makes a perfect circle, because it turns out that if the Earth goes around in a circle around the Sun, then the Sun's orbit would look like a circle as well. But the other planets would, were, had strange orbits in which they sometimes went backwards. Um, and this was due to the requirement of having epicycles on top of orbits and epicycles on top of epicycles, and it became a very complicated structure. Copernicus's argument was that it's not the Earth that's at the center of the universe, but rather the Sun. And by making that simple switch, all the other objects went into these simple, harmonious, almost perfect circular orbits um, around what, was, what he considered to be the center of the universe. Now, he realized, though, how dangerous this shift in paradigm was. Of course, he had to contend with the church, among other things, back then. And he wrote a book describing this change in paradigm, and he instructed his relatives and friends to publish the book only after his death. So he actually never knew, while he was alive, the impact that his thinking would have. So Copernicus's principle 
that we do not occupy any particularly special place in the universe has now been generalized to something that we call the cosmological principle, which means that we should not consider ourselves to occupy any particular vantage point in the universe and that any sentient being, no matter where they're located, looking out would see essentially the same kind of universe that we see, no matter where they are that the universe is homogeneous, meaning that it looks the same everywhere, and that it's isotropic, meaning that no matter where you are, in every direction, the universe looks more or less the same. So the cosmological principle is a great um, step forward in simplifying what we see in the cosmos, because if the, if the universe satisfies the cosmological principle, it means that it has to be simple at a very fundamental level. There cannot be structure that depends on position. However, the cosmological principle does not say anything about time. Um, and this is where the second major step forward in terms of simplifying our description of the, of the universe came about. And it came about because of a suggestion by the mathematician Weil, who argued with his postulate Remember, we can't prove these things. These are postulates because we can't actually go out and, and compare things on large distances and, and over great uh, periods of time. But Weil's postulate argues that the universe expands in a more or less orderly fashion so that no two world lines ever cross. What that simply means is that if you take any pair of galaxies and you follow their expansion, um, away from the initial Big Bang, the initial uh, expansion of the universe, that these two world lines of the galaxies would never cross. And, and that sort of makes sense, because if the expansion is orderly, and it doesn't depend on where you look in the universe, then you would expect these world lines to always be receding from each other. Now that sounds like it's almost an overly superficial statement, but it's not. It has significant consequences. And one of the most important ones is the following. Um, if no two world lines ever cross, it means that if you consider, let's, let's take for the, for the case of argument, um, <clears throat> for the sake of argument, let's say that we have an expanding balloon with dots painted on the balloon, and that we can take any pair of these and measure the distance between uh, the two spots on the balloon, if a pair of spots is initially two centimeters apart, um, and during the time that we look at the expansion, those two spots have moved to a distance of four centimeters apart from each other, then correspondingly, if we have another pair of points that's one centimeter originally, that pair would now be two centimeters apart. In other words, if world lines never cross, and you double the distance that you're considering, you should double the amount by which the expansion has occurred. Because otherwise, if it doesn't go in proportion like this, eventually some of the world lines would cross. So in order to avoid that crossing, we have to have this expansion in proportion. Now, the most important consequence of this is the following, um, that the distance between any two points um, can, it can be represented as the product of two quantities, one of which never changes. That's the little r here. You can think of the little r as the number of tick marks on a ruler, the number of tick marks. But the separation changes by a universal factor a, let's call it an expansion factor, which doesn't depend on position. It can depend on time, but not on position. Now, this is a remarkable consequence because, as you'll see, it leads to um, the Hubble's law in a very, very simple way. And then it has other consequences later on when we start talking about the role of gravity in cosmology and how general relativity should be applied. And it all stems from this single uh, property that any distance can be represented in terms of a universal function of time, A, that doesn't depend on position, and then another factor, R, that never changes. So this is how Hubble's law comes about. And, and I hope you'll bear with me for just a few moments, because although we don't want to go into all the technical details for this, that's not the point of, of a lecture like this, I do want to stay true to the science. And therefore, I want to show you some of the simple relations that emerge from, from uh, Weil's postulate. So the point is that if we now calculate the velocity, which is the distance divided by the time, 
or the derivative, if, if you're comfortable with that, um, then the only quantity that can depend on time and therefore represents the rate of change is this factor A. Little r doesn't change, remember, and A is a universal factor. So we can then divide this uh, quantity by A and multiply it by A. We're not changing the right-hand side by dividing and then multiplying by A, but the purpose for doing this is that we then get back this A times R, which is again the distance that we started with. And so the velocity naturally takes this form where it's proportional to the distance big R, and then the proportionality constant, which we're calling Hubble's constant, um, apparently depends on the rate at which this expansion factor changes and it's divided by the expansion factor itself. So here, virtually out of nothing, from just Weil's postulate that no two world lines should ever cross, we recover Hubble's law. But on top of that, we also see that the Hubble constant has a profound meaning. Um, it has much of the information pertaining to the dynamics of the expansion in the universe. And so this is why much of physical cosmology, the research in cosmology, is directed towards understanding how the Hubble constant changes, the value that it has, uh, because if we understand these characteristics, then in principle we understand much of, of, about the universe, about how it started and how um, it's been evolving since the Big Bang. Now today we have the technique or techniques, I should say, for measuring the Hubble constant with remarkable accuracy. You can see here the bottom line is that we have a number with an accuracy of just a couple of percent, a possible error of a couple of percent. The units, of course, of the Hubble constant are kilometers per second, that's the velocity, per megaparsec, given the distance to, uh, to the source. Um, again, the point of this is not to go into all the technical details, but I, I should mention that um, how this is done, because it, it represents significant steps forward in our ability to make precise measurements in cosmology. The first step was being able to um, detect Cepheid variable stars in nearby galaxies. This is what Hubble himself did actually, and this is how he was able to measure the distance to nearby galaxies. These are stars that pulsate, and the period of pulsation is proportional to the luminosity of the star. So the point is that these stars can then be used as so-called standard candles. If we know what the luminosity is once we measure the period, then we know how far away they must be based on how much it, how, what the intensity is that we measure at Earth. Um, the period can be measured regardless of how far the star is. And so once the period is known, then we know what its intrinsic luminosity is, and so we can work backwards and determine um, the distance. In modern times, in the, in the past decade or so, this technique has been coupled with another technique based on standard candles, which I'm sure you've all heard about, the use of type 1a supernovae. This is what led to the Nobel Prize last year. Um, and in fact, one of the individuals involved in this work, Reese, was one of the recipients of the Nobel Prize from Johns Hopkins University. Um, the, the technique here is to find galaxies at intermediate distances, like these, in which one can see both Cepheid variables and also detect type 1a supernovae. And then one can normalize the luminosity of the type 1a supernovae based on uh, what one sees with the Cepheid variables. And by then looking at, looking for type 1a supernovae in much more distant galaxies out to a billion light years or so, one can extend the reach of sources that can be used for the measurement of the Hubble constant uh, significantly, and that's what has led to this incredible accuracy in the measurement of the Hubble constant today. And by the way, the subscript zero, whenever you see that, means that's the value of a cosmological parameter measured today, but the Hubble constant, like many of the other um, parameters, change with, uh, changes with time, and so this would, ha would have had a different value in the past. And by the way, they, they call this the SHOES project, which stands for the use of supernovae to measure H0 and the equation of state. The equation of state pertains to the dark energy, uh, which apparently has to be present in order to uh, provide the expansion rate that we're measuring today. And I'll come back to this a little bit later. Okay, so we know the Hubble constant fairly well now. Um, and so we should be able to use it 
as a diagnostic for various other questions that, that we need to ask, including the following. Since the universe appears to be expanding according to Hubble's law, where the velocity continues to increase with distance, there's no limit to this, right? Weil's postulate just tells us that the velocity should be proportional to the distance, but it doesn't say that there's a limit to this. So in principle, we can find sources further and further away until V reaches the speed of light, okay? So at some point, the velocity becomes the speed of light, and at that point where V becomes equal to C, the speed of light, the radius takes on a special uh, significance, and we call it the Hubble radius at that point. So the Hubble radius is the distance from us at which the velocity of recession is equal to the speed of light. And so, um, clearly the Hubble radius then depends on just these two simple numbers. The speed of light C, which we can measure locally, and it depends on the Hubble constant, which we now have the ability to measure to a few percent accuracy. And that Hubble radius is given as the speed of light divided by, by H. And I'll, I can tell you that if you put in the numbers, and this is quite instructive, it's an instructive exercise to do. If you put in the numbers with the measured value of H and the speed of light, you find that the Hubble radius is approximately 13 or 1 over, uh, well, in terms of the distance that light can travel, it's 13.7 billion light years, which is interesting already because the age of the universe, we think, is about 13.7 billion years, which means that the Hubble radius is equal to the distance that light has traveled since the time of the Big Bang. That's already very intriguing, and there's a meaning to that. That's not a coincidence. We'll come back to this a little bit later. So this is the point now where general relativity enters the discussion because we have this intriguing um, result from the observations. There's a Hubble radius. The question is why does the universe possess a Hubble radius and why does it have that, that value? Why is there a special point at which the velocity of recession approaches the speed of light? Why doesn't it happen before or why doesn't it happen after? Well, for this we now have to talk about gravity and, of course, the context today for that is general relativity. But in order to understand how we're going to introduce these, these uh, features from GR, let's actually go back to the time of Newton. Um, Newton, of course, as is well known, developed the universal law of gravitation, the first such um, significant uh, descriptor of gravity. Um, but in order to describe the gravitational attraction between the moon and the earth, he had to make um, a wild assumption, which at the time he had difficulty justifying. You see, the point is that in order to calculate the force between the moon and the earth, he had to take into account the fact that the moon was close enough to the earth that the earth could not be considered as a point. Um, he had to worry about the fact that one side of the Earth was attracting the Moon in a way that perhaps was different from the way that the other side of the Earth was attracting the Moon, or the rear of the Earth, or the front of the Earth. He had no way of calculating the net force between the Moon and the Earth, given that the mass was distributed over such a large volume, considering that they were relatively close. So he made the, the wild assumption that because of the symmetry, um, any component of the force pointing away from the radius between these two objects would cancel between two parts on opposite sides of the Earth. That this part here would have a component that canceled uh, the component from the other side of the Earth, that the components were not along the radius. In other words, he assumed that you could consider all of the Earth as being a point having all of the mass of the Earth at its center. And this, of course, worked, um, and he was quite happy with that, but it took him 20 years to eventually develop calculus in order to prove that this was correct. So Newton invented calculus 20 years after he made this wild assumption in order to prove that given the, the symmetry, the spherical symmetry of the distribution of the mass, that he could consider all of that mass as being just at a point. Now, if we move forward several hundred years 
to the epoch of general relativity, we can't necessarily use Newton's arguments, Newton's theorems, because general relativity is quite different from classical uh, gravitational theory. For one thing, uh, we have to worry about the self-energy of the mass, which can contribute to gravity. We also have to worry about the fact that gravity is not instantaneous. The effect of gravity travels at the speed of light. So all of these differences, like these two significant ones, um, make it... Um, uh, make it such that it's not obvious for us to just extrapolate from Newton's theories and apply those in the context of general relativity. But this is where the mathematician Birkhoff enters the picture. Uh, George Birkhoff was a, a mathematician at Harvard University who generalized Newton's theorems um, and showed that they apply even in the context of general relativity, even when we have to deal with curved space-time and all the effects of self-energy and finite propagation speeds and so on. And here is the crux of the most important theory that he developed, which, by the way, he published in a book. He didn't even think that these were important enough to publish in scientific papers. He just put them together in a book and, you know, and this became um, one of the most important contributions to general relativity in the 20th century. So the crux of his most important theory is the following. Because of the spherical symmetry um, of the effect of gravity, if you take an infinite medium, which we think the universe is, and you cut uh, a spherical um, a cavity inside this infinite medium, the effect of gravity from outside of the cavity, inside the cavity, is zero. And this works for the same reasons that Newton um, assumed uh, would work in the case of the effect of gravity from uh, the Earth's mass being distributed. In the sense that if you consider the effect from one piece of the material outside of the cavity inside, by symmetry, there should be a corresponding piece diametric, diametrically opposite, which would have a cancelling effect inside the cavity here. Now, it's not obvious to just say in words that this should happen because we have to worry about what happens not only at the center of the cavity, but also towards the edge, closer to the, to the surface. And maybe the symmetry is not so obvious when you get near the edge, but you can prove mathematically that it is, that these different clumps, diametrically opposite, always cancel exactly everywhere inside the cavity, not just at the center, but throughout this cavity. And so the point is that no matter how much mass there is outside of the cavity, no matter that the universe is infinite, if you were inside the spherical cavity, you would experience exactly zero effect from the gravitational pull of the material outside. Now, the reason this is so important and so simplifying is that if we then want to know what the gravitational effect is between us and any distant galaxy, all we have to know is how much mass there is between us and that galaxy. Because if we place ourselves at the center and we have another observer on the outside, the only gravitational interaction between us in the middle and this other observer is due to the mass between us and that observer. Because for us, it's as if the rest of the universe doesn't exist. We're inside this cavity and you know, we don't care, we don't know what's happening outside of, of this shell. So if you think about this then, eventually, if we look at a galaxy that's far enough away, and if the universe is more or less homogeneous on these large scales, as we increase the volume more and more, we eventually reach a point where there's enough mass between us and the observer to create an event horizon in just the way that it happens with a black hole. With a black hole, as you know, um, when you uh, compact enough mass within a sufficiently small volume, um, then the gravitational pull, or if you use the language of general relativity, the curvature of the space-time, is significant enough that even light can't escape from, from that region. The same thing happens here. Eventually, we look at an observer or a distant galaxy that's far enough away that there's enough mass collected between us and, and that point to create an event horizon, which means that there's a gravitational radius um, between any observer in the universe, no matter where they are. For, it, for that observer, there's eventually a point beyond which there's no interaction with anything beyond that point because there's a gravitational horizon. 
Now, we won't go into all the details of calculating what the radius of this volume has to be in order to create a, uh, an event horizon, but the answer is that the gravitational radius is equal to C over H. Now, it's sort of fortuitous that Hubble's name begins with an H because then we can use the same symbol for both. We can use RH for horizon and, of course, we can use RH for the Hubble radius, but I think you get the point. The point is that the Hubble radius is not a coincidence. It's not just some random radius that occurs in the universe. Apparently, it's a manifestation of the gravitational radius because it has exactly the same form. It's the speed of light divided by Hubble's constant. Okay, so that's already interesting. And what it suggests is that there's a maximum distance from any given observer. And remember that there's no special point. So there's a gravitational radius, a gravitational horizon for us here on Earth, but there's equally the same gravitational radius, the same horizon for any observer anywhere in the universe. There's no particular point where this applies. This applies relative to any center that we pick, wherever we want to put that in the universe. But the point is that there is a maximum distance beyond which any given observer cannot receive any signal, anything that travels at the speed of light, um, or, or less, of course. Um, so there's a maximum distance of, of interaction. But here is now where Viles' postulate comes back into the argument. Because Viles' postulate tells us that any distance, such as the gravitational radius, has to be a product of something that never changes, this little rh, and this universal function of time, the expansion factor A. But we now know that the Hubble radius is equal to C over H. And if you remember, H is the ratio of the rate of change of A over A. And when you compare these two expressions, they have to give you the same answer because we're talking about the same quantity. And you notice that A appears in both, so that's okay. But then in one expression, there's a second factor that's a constant, and in the other one, there's a combination of factors that involves the, right, the rate of change of A, the expansion with which the gravitational horizon is growing. So if these two quantities are equal, and according to Weil, they have to be, what this says is that the gravitational horizon must be increasing at a steady rate, which is equal to the speed of light. And so the gravitational horizon um, after a time t is equal to the speed of light times t. Now, to anybody who's very familiar with black holes, um, there's nothing remarkable about this. This is a known quantity. We, we know, for example, that when an observer is falling freely towards a black hole, in his or her frame, the event horizon is approaching them at the speed of light. And just when they cross the event horizon, that, that the speed of, of that crossing is exactly the speed of light. So something like this is, 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 a, is a property of, of black hole space times that we're all familiar with. We know that event horizons have to be moving relative to free-falling observers at the speed of light. In fact, that's what defines the event horizon. It's that membrane, that surface, um, below which something would have to be moving faster than the speed of light in order to cross it. So if, it's, if it is the event horizon, it has to be moving at the speed of light. That's what defines it. But here what we're now finding, using simple arguments based on, on Weil and the symmetry from the cosmological principle and then simple arguments from general relativity about what the gravitational radius should be, we find that any observer in the cosmos sees a gravitational horizon about them and that that horizon is moving away from them at the speed of light c so that the size of this volume enclosed within the gravitational um, horizon is, is given by c times the age of the universe t. Okay, so how does that compare with the observations then? Um, because if there's one thing that cosmology has done extremely well over the decades is developed into uh, an observational science with, with remarkable accuracy 
in what we can measure today. And this comes from many different avenues. It's not just the type 1A supernovae, but if you were here um, for Chris Simpy's talk, you, you would know that the microwave background is providing us remarkable information. There's information coming from so-called cosmic chronometers where we can age stars and galaxies and determine how the Hubble constant is changing as a function of time and, and so forth. So um, in, in cosmology today, in observational cosmology, we have a lot of information to work with. But yet, cosmology is still mostly an empirical science, which means that what we know about the universe is based primarily on different bits and pieces that we observe, and then we have to guess um, the rest of it. For example, we have to guess what the constituents of the universe are. We don't know for sure if we have all the parts. We know, for example, that there's matter in the universe. There's no question about that because we're made of matter. We're made of baryonic matter. But there's also dark matter, apparently. Um, and this is a, a famous image of the so-called bullet cluster, which shows the collision between two clusters. Um, and the point of this is that uh, on top of the, of the photos of the, the galaxies within the clusters, there is superimposed an image of the X-ray emitting gas, which is in red, and then the blue is representing where the mass is located to bend the light from distant sources, from quasars in the background. So in other words, what we're seeing here is the result of the collision between two clusters that have essentially passed through each other. Um, and what we notice is that the baryonic matter that produces the X-rays is more or less confined to the middle region, whereas the dark matter that's not associated with the X-ray producing gas has continued to move on because dark matter only interacts gravitationally, we think. I mean, we're, we're still at a primitive stage in terms of understanding its properties, but we believe that it doesn't interact um, electromagnetically, for example. Um, and therefore, even though baryonic matter would have other influences keeping it confined, such as Coulomb forces, um, dark matter would not. And so the idea is that the dark matter has continued to move past uh, the central collision point, um, and therefore we're seeing evidence, we believe, of the separation between baryonic matter and dark matter as a result of this collision between two clusters. Okay, but the point is that we know that there has to be matter in the universe. And there's a, there are apparently two forms of matter, visible matter and dark matter, but we don't know quite exactly how much of it there is. It's difficult to make these measurements. We also know that there has to be light, radiation. Um, we, we, obviously, we see the radiation, and we know that if we, uh, based on the, the amount of radiation that we detect today, if we calculate how important the radiation was back in time going to the Big Bang, the radiation became more and more important because its pressure grows faster than the pressure of matter and, and its energy density grows faster as well. So back in the early times, radiation was the dominant component, not matter. We also know that there's apparently a third form um, of energy associated with something that we refer to as dark energy because we don't really know very much about it. We know that it doesn't have properties like matter or radiation, um, but we know that there has to be something like it present because the, the dynamics of the universe are not consistent with just matter and radiation being present. There's apparently something else. But mind you, these are all guesses, right? We, we know, we see that there has to be matter. We know that there has to be radiation. We hypothesize that there has to be something else like dark energy, but we don't know its properties. And we don't know if there are two forms of dark energy or perhaps three or perhaps even more than that. However, when we apply the simplest cosmological model that we have, known as lambda CDM, which stands for a model in which the energy density is comprised of a cosmological constant that represents dark energy, cold dark matter, and of course baryonic matter has to be there as well. When we apply that model to the data, we infer, for reasons that we don't understand, that matter comprises about 27% of the total energy density in the universe. That seems like a thoroughly random number. Why 27%? You know, it could have been zero, it could have been 100%, but 
which perhaps would have made more sense, but 27% seems to be a number out of the blue. But here is the point now. Now that we have this better argument for how the gravitational radius is expanding um, from general relativity and, and Weyl's postulate, we can now compare with the data and with what Lambda CDM is telling us to see if there's a reason <clears throat> why this fraction of energy in the form of matter has to come out to be 27%, and, 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 and there is. Um, and it's not very difficult to understand. So in this figure, um, what's shown is the ratio of how far light could have traveled um, since the time of the Big Bang, that's CT, divided by uh, the value of the gravitational radius. So this ratio, according to what we just said, uh, based on the relativistic context, should be equal to 1. And it should be 1 at all times. Um, but particularly, it should be 1 today. So it should lie at this, at this point here on the graph. Now, these other curves indicate what that value of CT over RH is for different assumptions about the dark energy. And on the horizontal axis, what we're seeing is, what's plotted here is the, um, the ratio omega m, the ratio of energy in the form of matter. So if matter is all there is in the universe, then this number would be 1, which means that that corresponds to uh, 0 on the log scale. Whereas if matter were insignificant, then we would be on the far left end of the, of the scale. And so these various curves indicate um, what that ratio of CT over RH is as a function um, of this ratio omega m um, of the, the fraction of energy in the form of matter. And the prevailing thinking today is that dark energy is Einstein's cosmological constant. As you probably know, um, Einstein didn't like the idea of a universe that was expanding or contracting. And so he invented a cosmological constant to stabilize his equations, to, to show that there was a point, um, a particular value of, of the density that would allow the universe to stay in more or less equilibrium over time. And of course, then he retracted that idea, but the, the notion of a cosmological constant never went away. And today, the simplest assumption that cosmologists can make about dark energy is that it's a cosmological constant, meaning that um, the energy density associated with this ingredient um, doesn't change as a function of position and it doesn't change as a function of time. It's always the same value everywhere. Um, that's a fairly constraining assumption to make, but as I say, we don't know anything else about dark energy, and so it's a reasonable first step to take. But this is what the curve looks like for, dark for a cosmological constant in particular. And there's only one value of omega m, the fraction of energy in the form of matter, that makes this ratio of CT over RH be equal to 1. And if you invert the log, this value comes out to be 27%. So the point is that we have an imperfect model of the universe, lambda CDM, because we don't know exactly what the ingredients are. But if we assume that the ingredients are just matter, radiation, matter, radiation, and dark energy, the fraction of energy in the form of matter, dark matter and baryonic matter, is 27%. So that doesn't necessarily mean, and I don't want to leave you with a false impression, that doesn't necessarily mean that this is exactly what matter, uh, how matter is represented. Because as I say, it's an imperfect model. We don't know where these ingredients come from, and we don't really have a complete theory yet um, to tell us what all of the components in the universe are. But if we impose the constraint that there have to be only three, then Weyl's postulate and general relativity force the fraction of energy in the form of matter to be 27%, which is exactly what we measure when we um, analyze the data. So um, I'm going to leave you with, a, with an interesting possibility based on what we said. Of course, there are many more consequences to this, and perhaps there'll be another opportunity um, sometime in the near future to talk about those as well. But there is a very interesting possibility that comes to mind immediately. 
um, and that has relevance to other work that has been done in cosmology in the past decade or so. Um, we know, of course, that the universe began with the Big Bang, and what we just talked about, the existence of the gravitational uh, radius and, and the size of this volume with which we can have causal contact, all of these new results confirm the fact that the universe had to have a beginning, that it had to have <coughs> um, uh, a Big Bang that started the expansion because the gravitational radius increases in proportion um, to time, and so there has to be a finite time in the past when the gravitational radius was zero, and that would correspond to the time of the Big Bang. Now, <clears throat> the idea of a Big Bang was actually first suggested by this Belgian priest, George Lemaitre, um, another brilliant individual who had many interesting ideas, like Friedman uh, as well, um, his notion was that the universe started as an explosion from an atomic scale. And in fact, if you read his early papers in the late 1920s, that's what he referred to it as. He referred to it as the atomic model of the universe. Um, when he first presented these ideas to Einstein, who was in Europe at the time, um, Einstein, of course, didn't believe any of this. He didn't believe Friedman and he didn't believe George Lemaitre either. And in fact, um, Einstein wrote back in French to Lemaitre and, and, and told him that his mathematics was reasonable, but his physics was abominable, abominable, abominable uh, physics. So um, that changed, of course, a few years later when Hubble published his papers proving that the universe was expanding. And um, George Lemaitre and Einstein met again in 1933 at Caltech. Uh, here is Millikan, who was a professor at Caltech, and he was the host. Um, this, this meeting was quite interesting. There were many Nobel laureates in attendance. In fact, um, both Millikan and, and Einstein had already won the Nobel Prizes by then. George Lemaitre never did, because he never completed the, 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 um, the fleshing out of the theory that came much later on. But he is credited with the original um, idea that eventually became known as the Big Bang. Um, idea, which was developed by several other people um, later. But here's the point. So the point is that if there was a Big Bang, and now all the indicators, including the context in general relativity, seem to be pointing in that direction, um, an obvious question to ask is, what is the size of the visible universe? You see, the, the, the point of this is that if we can only communicate out to a maximum distance, the gravitational horizon, then it's not possible for there to have been sources outside of that horizon that emitted light that is getting to us now. There has to be a finite distance beyond which we can't communicate with objects on the outside. Well, it turns out that the maximum distance, the, the size of the visible universe, is exactly half of the gravitational horizon that we have today. And the reason is the following, that um, at the time of the Big Bang, all the distant galaxies were essentially right in front of our nose. We were together with all of the sources that we're seeing in the far reaches of the universe. And what that means is that the furthest sources that we can see are the ones that were traveling the fastest away from us, and they were traveling at the speed of light, moving away from us. That's the, the highest speed that they could have had. And so those fastest moving sources were able to get to half um, of the distance to today's gravitational horizon, at which point the, they emitted the light that is just now getting to us, because the light is coming to us at, at the same speed, at the speed of light. So in other words, the most distant sources that we can see today were at the distance of the gravitational horizon back then, which was at half the age of the universe today. Okay, so that's already intriguing, but now, here is an immediate consequence of that. I, I don't know if you've ever heard of the holographic universe, but, but there are cosmologists who take these ideas seriously. The notion here is that um, the physical phenomena that are occurring within a volume of a certain part of the universe are either related or, or connected or due to information which is encoded on the surface of this volume. That's where the name holographic universe comes from. But what's interesting here is that 
this understanding of the gravitational horizon and the volume within which we can um, have causal contact may provide a foundation for the holographic universe. Because the point is that if the most distant sources we can see are the ones that were moving very, very close to the speed of light at the time that they emitted the, the radiation that is now reaching us today, relativity says that distances would be severely contracted when we look to those, to those far reaches, uh, those far points um, in the universe. In the sense that any sources close to that edge um, would be moving, would all be moving at close to the speed of light and therefore this part of the universe would be significantly contracted to the extent that the rest of the universe, as far as we're concerned, is essentially confined within a very thin shell on the surface of this volume that has a radius equal to the gravitational horizon. So if you think about that, the rest of the universe to us looks like it's confined within this very thin contracted shell which essentially has all the information that would be required in a holographic universe kind of idea. So no work has been done along these lines. This is just an initial comparison between the two, but it's intriguing that the holographic universe may actually have a basis um, that comes from these properties of the part of the universe that we know that we can be in causal contact with uh, when we introduce the um, uh, general relativity into the discussion. And so we, we reach this point now where, thanks to the, the work of several remarkable individuals, and I, I should have included Copernicus and Lemaitre and perhaps even Galileo and Newton on this, um, on, on this set of images, but um, Einstein, of course, introduced general relativity. Friedman was this mathematical prodigy who found one of the most important solutions to Einstein's equations in the 1920s. He died young, by the way, and if you don't know his name, it's because like Schwarzschild, they were only able to do one thing before they died prematurely. And so there wasn't a large body of work that we can attribute to him. But his solution, the Friedman solution, is the backbone of cosmology today. And so he's clearly a very important figure in this story. Then, of course, there's Birkhoff, the mathematician who showed us how to um, incorporate the ideas of gravitational effects in a universe that is probably infinite, as far as we can tell, um, but nonetheless we can limit the, the impact of the gravitational effect from most of the universe when we consider a small spherical volume. And then there's Weil, the uh, mathematician who uh, completed the work that led to the cosmological principle. The cosmological principle applies to any given instant of time in the universe, but to argue that the cosmological principle is preserved from time to time, we have to uh, introduce Weyl's postulate, which if you remember, simply says that the universe is expanding in a very orderly fashion. Anyway, after all is said and done, and now we're at a point in time where we can bring general relativity into the discussion and really make meaningful um, a meaningful comparison between the data and the predictions of the theory, it turns out that the universe is probably much simpler than we thought because it has a gravitational radius that is expanding at a constant rate, which really makes everything else fall into place right away. And the bottom line is that the cosmological space-time appears to have elements in common with what we think is happening in the interior of a black hole. Now, Mind you, this doesn't mean that the universe is a black hole. It can't be, because a black hole has a fixed singularity. Um, an observer on the outside knows that there's a particular place where the center of the black hole is located. For us, inside um, the cosmos, when we look out, every observer, no matter where they're located, can place the origin of the coordinates where they are. But the point is that relative to them, there's a, there's a gravitational horizon, just like there is uh, in the case of a black hole. If you were to look out, you would see that there's a limit that um, uh, restricts the amount of communication that can happen between the inside and the outside. So there's, there's a commonality of, of characteristics between the two, although one can say with a fairly high degree of confidence that it cannot be exactly the same thing, but there, there are a lot of similarities. And um, thank you for coming again tonight and, and for listening.
Thank you very much, Fulvio. We do have time for some questions. Any questions? Right, right yes. In, in the family of curves that you showed with the ratio of CT to, uh, to H, uh, uh, there were a whole family of curves, but, they, but they, you didn't say what the parameters were for the family. Ah, okay. So what's changing from one curve to the other is an important property of dark energy, which is the amount of pressure that it exerts. So the cosmological constant is special because the pressure has a, uh, a very important value, a very precise value. It's minus the density, uh, the energy density. The other curves that you see here have different values of the pressure. There's no reason to believe one over any of the others. It's just that the cosmological constant has a history going back to Einstein, and so there's, there's a pedigree, and, and we, we tend to use it more often than the others. But in terms of which one is preferred by the, by, uh, uh, certainly by physical arguments, there's, there's no special value, although the data seem to indicate that it's maybe a cosmological constant. Question here. I don't understand how there can be an infinite universe, and yet there's a visible universe with a certain dimension yes. and a gravitational right. horizon. I, I don't Very think good anybody question. <laughs> can follow that. Very good question. This is what relativity does. Um, the point is that the universe can be infinite, although for any one observer, no matter where they are, for that observer there's a limit to how far they can interact with, with the rest of the universe. So the point is that this gravitational horizon exists for every observer, but it's not centered uh, at the same place for every observer. It's centered wherever the observer happens to be. It's very, very strange because if you think about it, then, you know, any given observer has a limit to how far they can interact with any other observer, right? It's just a gravitational horizon. And yet, the universe would still have to be infinite if the cosmological principle applies. Horizon? Yes. And, but remember that the, the, the location where the gravitational horizon is centered is, is arbitrary. So it doesn't mean that there are, there's a fixed number of points with a horizon. So you shouldn't think of this as there being um, you know, adjoining spherical cavities uh, all, all next to each other. It's not like that. The point is that you have a gravitational horizon relative to where you are. I have one here. And even though we're close, ours are different. And, and they're different also from somebody on Alpha Centauri or in M31 or M87. You know, every observer has their own gravitational horizon. So for every observer, there's a limit to how far they can see events happening in the universe, but the universe itself is still infinite. We have a question up here. Uh, yes. Uh, in relation to uh, gravitational horizon and the event horizon, does uh, one have more bearing over, uh, you know, that, that's another good question. I use the terms interchangeably, but in this context, they're the same. So the gravitational horizon is the radius, or it's at least it's a spherical surface that has a radius um, beyond which if, um, information would have to travel faster than the speed of light in order for that signal to traverse through that membrane. So it becomes an event horizon as, as well. They're, they're interchangeable, those terms, in this context. When light, uh, uh, at, the, at the speed of light when it's going into a black hole, uh, is, is there, a, um, is there a, a physical light awareness uh, after it uh, passes that event horizon? Um, let me, I'm not sure if this is exactly what you're asking, but let me, let me say the following, because I know that this is often a point of confusion. There are many different ways to talk about speeds and to measure speeds um, in relativity. Um, the most commonly used form of speed is called coordinate speed, which is a speed based just on the values of the coordinates, but that's not a physical speed. The physical speed has to, be move, it has to be measured in terms of rulers and clocks that are not moving relative to the observer. This is a fundamental requirement of relativity, but these speeds are sometimes mixed and, and confused, one with the other. So the point is that light is always traveling at the same speed when we use rulers and clocks to measure it that are not moving relative to us. So the light will cross the event horizon at the same speed c that we have in this room, but as long as we're always using clocks and rulers that are not moving. 
Um, and so as far as we're concerned, light itself, of course, is not sentient, if that's what you were referring to. So, you know, there's, there's no self-realization of the light as it crosses through. But an observer like, like us, for example, observers like us, when we look at the light crossing the event horizon, we do see it cross at the same speed C that we measure in the room, but only as long as we use rulers and clocks that are not moving relative to us. Sorry? Um, yeah, in the case of a black hole, there has to be a specific horizon. There's only one, right? For every observer, there's only one horizon. But in the case of cosmology, then it, there isn't any unique horizon. Every observer has their own horizons relative to where they're located. I think we'll take one more question. Did you have a question, sir? Did, you, did I understand you say that the dark energy is constant in the universe? Well, this is the simplest assumption that is made, that it's a cosmological constant, meaning that it's the same, that it's not only the same everywhere in the universe, but it's also the same at every time since the Big Bang, um, which is really incredibly constraining. Um, aren't, aren't black holes that dark energy or not? Well, dark energy, the one property that we know about dark energy is that it has to be spread out over very large distances. It doesn't condense. Matter condenses because, you know, we see stars and planets and us and, you know, we know how radiation behaves. Um, and we know that dark matter condenses apparently because we can map it and we can see that it's more or less in the same volume as the baryonic matter. But dark energy apparently, if it exists, doesn't condense. It's not like we can see a galaxy made of dark energy. And therefore, since it doesn't condense on these scales, it can condense enough to affect the structure of a black hole, for example. There, there would be dark energy that permeates throughout the, the black hole environment, inside and out, but it doesn't condense to contribute to the, to, you know, the so mass. Black, so a black hole is separate than, a, than, than this, this? Yes, so energy. black holes represent condensations of something, presumably matter and energy, on a scale much more compact than dark energy can, can condense. All right, um, I have some good news. The telescope uh, works. Yeah, I went up to the telescope when the talk began because I came up with an idea how to solve the focus problem, and it worked. So if you want to look through the big 21-inch telescope, feel free. It's up and it's working. Hopefully, uh, the problem is the building's in the way. Yeah, it takes a while for Jupiter to clear the building on the east side. So the telescope is open for your viewing. I'll remind you again, there is a public talk on Friday, the 14th of November. Friday? 16th, Friday the 16th of November, and if you want to see the abstract for the talk, it's on flyers up there. That's the Aronson Lecture at 7.30. Our last public evening is that first Monday in December, where we'll learn about whether the world's going to end on December 21st, 2012. I'll stamp student assignments down here. Let's talk. thank Professor... <laughs>